It's now time for Skagit Talks, featuring local news, interviews, and information from around the valley, created with the help of Skagit County community volunteers. Now, KSVR 91.7 presents Skagit Talks. Today is a discussion with Kathleen Martin, Housing Program Manager for Community Action of Skagit. She talks about dispersing finances from the Eviction Prevention Program to renters and some landlords who need help because of COVID-19. In the Northwest News Report, arborists say Oregon Department of Transportation post-fires tree cutting is excessive. Rushed. All this and more in today's edition. Now, the Eviction Prevention Program. Hello there. This is Daryl hamilton Manier for Skagit Talks. Since the COVID lockdown, numbers of Washington State residents have been affected financially, including here in Skagit County. Today, I'll be speaking with Kathleen Morton, who is the Housing Program Manager for Community Action of Skagit County. And we'll be discussing the restarting of Community Action's Eviction Prevention Program. Kathleen, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. And just briefly, what does the Housing Program Manager position entail? Right now, I'm doing a little bit of everything. Um, I came into my position in June, actually, so right in between of all this COVID craziness. And so it's been quite interesting to um, figure out how to support a team virtually while all my staff is working remotely, um, while learning my position, learning the grants, and how we can really support the community. Um, So... Uh, Right now, we have a number of housing programs. Uh, So we have permanent supportive housing programs. We have some rapid rehousing programs. Um, I was overseeing our street outreach team. However, that's uh, under a new department now. And we have our family shelter and a number of other programs that I oversee. Okay, so it sounds like you're a very busy person. (laughs) I'm working on getting some more help here. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And for those listeners who are unfamiliar with or unaware of what the eviction prevention program is, can you give a a brief explanation about the program? Absolutely. So the eviction prevention program is a program that we started back in September in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, We partnered with Skagit County uh, to disperse emergency funding as quickly as we could. Um, Since then, we've had a few different rounds of funding go through this program. Right now, we have uh, our main funding source, TRAP, that we are working to disperse. What this funding is looking like right now is um, providing rental assistance to those who have been financially impacted by COVID. So uh, we started this another round of funding, April 5th, in partnership with a number of other community agencies, such as Northwest Youth Services, Catholic Community Services, uh, Housing Authority, as well as Volunteers of America. So, okay. Okay. Yeah, our goal is to really prevent evictions in Skagit County, and we're when we do an intake with a household, we're also screening for other resources that the household may qualify for, as well. Okay. Okay. So now. Is Community Action the only organization locally offering this program? Uh, Not currently. So we do have um, Northwest Youth Services, Catholic Community Services, uh, Housing Authority, and um, 
Volunteers of America that are also dispersing this TRAP funding. Okay, so I just thought yeah. they were just giving, providing the funding for you to disperse it, but so anyone yeah. can go to any of these these organizations. That's correct. Get, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, and so um, these agencies also have some wait lists that they're working off of, but they're also receiving uh, active referrals as well. So they can call any of these agencies to get on their wait list and start the eligibility process. Okay. And what are the specific requirements for someone to qualify for the pro pro for the program? That's a really great question. Um, so all this information is actually available on our website. So if you have ha not had a chance to look at our website yet, um, we have a specific eviction prevention tab on our website, which really outlines all the eligibility information for TRAP right now. Um, the three criteria for the TRAP program are, um, you must be income eligible at 80% AMI within the last 60 days. I know that's some housing jargon, so um, let me know if you want any clarification on that. Um, you also need to be experiencing financial hardship, so be able to provide a statement about how COVID-19 has impacted your financial situation as well as you must be at risk for experiencing homelessness or currently experiencing any housing instability. So this is quite flexible compared to our ERAP funding that we had a few months ago. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I know that another community action and wants to make sure that the available funds go to the people who truly need the assistance. Absolutely. So what kind of what kind of due diligence is done when it comes to you know, going over and approving the application so that you can avoid scammers who might try to take advantage of the situation. Ugh, great question. So uh, as we are completing our eligibility uh, screenings, we are looking over our waitlist to see if they've already called to get on our website waitlist or um, we've served them previously. And we're able to track that with our, in our own internal database Empower. And so that's how we're screening to ensure that there's people not taking advantage of the program. Okay, good, good. Yeah. And I, I would assume that there are limited funds available. Um, would that be an accurate assumption? Um, we do have more flexibility with these funds. Uh, this is probably the largest sum that we've received for this program so far. And we're hoping that... Um, probably in about six months or a little bit longer, we'll have a replenishment of funds, but we shall see. Okay, so for this current uh, batch of funding, um, is it pretty much or pretty safe to say it's first come first serve? That is correct. So we are um, serving households first come first serve through our phone line right now. Uh, households can call Monday morning from 8.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. to schedule an appointment for that week. Um, they are also able to schedule on our website and every week we take a certain number of appointments from our website and we schedule them in for with our eviction prevention specialists. Uh, we are prioritizing prioritizing uh, households that are under the 50% AMI, AMI or who are unemployed who are applying through our wait list online. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. And what if someone doesn't qualify for the eviction prevention program? Does Community Action offer any other types of assistance for people to help them with the paying their, with their rent? 
It really depends on the situation. Um, our eviction prevention specialists will try to get pull as much information from the household to determine which referral is most appropriate. So say um, if they're having a lot of difficulty with their landlords, then we may refer them to our volunteer lawyer program. Um, if they are needing ongoing assistance, we have our other housing assistance programs that we could uh, encourage them to apply to. Um, but it really depends on the the household situation. Okay. And is this program geared solely toward residential rental properties or can you apply for assistance if you have a commercial rental? Uh, so if like an apartment building is what you mean by yes, that? Uh -huh. Yes. Mm -hmm. And landlords can actually engage the process as well. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. Um, so how long does the whole process normally take, you know, from the processing of the application to the money being sent out? That is a great question. Right now we are working off a wait list that is about 160 uh, households long right now. So as you can anticipate, there's a little bit of a wait in order to complete the eligibility screening. Right now we're thinking about three weeks, three or four weeks to complete the eligibility screening uh, for our wait list. However, once you do have an appointment, the process can go fairly quickly within two weeks. It really depends if the household is able to provide the documentation needed within a timely manner. Uh, once we have all the forms we need, then um, payment can be sent out that week or the week after. Okay. Um, but we really want to process households as quickly as we can at this point. That sounds good. Um, does the money go directly to the applicant or to the landlord? The money does go towards the landlord directly. Um, if for some reason the landlord is not willing to work with us, we do have the ability to play, pay the household member, um, but that's really a last resort. Okay. And then how far back, as far as back rent goes, how far, how much um, can the uh, program pay? That's a great question. So we can pay as far back as March 2020 and do a maximum of, tw of 12 months of assistance. The household can reapply for three months of additional assistance if needed. Okay. And, and I guess you could say that this, this program, in a sense, also benefits the landlords because what seems to get lost um, in all this is that landlords have taxes and bills to pay other financial obligations as well. So this kind of helps them out also in a, in a sense. Oh, absolutely. I, our relationships with landlords uh, in Skagit County are incredibly important. And we're hoping that providing this assistance will not only uh, improve the household situation, but will um, help us build more partnerships with landlords in the community and show uh, and really can help them with their business as well. Um, we're hoping to do a... Um, outreach event with landlords to talk a little bit more about this program in mid-May. It will be somewhat of an info session where all the agencies who are dispersing these funds will come together and talk about how their programs are working. So we'll be sure to share that information. Okay. And how long is the eviction prevention program supposed to last? you have any idea on that? Sorry about that. Um, yes, so we, um, this particular program um, is expected to run until September 2022. However, 
depending on the funding that becomes available within the next year or so, it may be further out than that, depending on how our recovery is going. All right, sounds good. And you've, you know, I've learned a lot uh, from this interview and I would love to ask you some more questions. Unfortunately, we kind of running um, late on time. So once again, I've been speaking with Kathleen Morton, the housing program manager for Community Action of Skagit County. Kathleen, thank you again for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was great chatting with you. Not a problem. And this has been Daryl Hamilton-Menier for Skagit Talks. Here's the Northwest News Report. Last year's wildfires left a lot of burned trees across a million acres of land in Oregon. And some of those trees are truly hazardous. If they fall on roads or homes, they could injure or kill people. But arborists say removing hazard trees shouldn't result in the kind of clear cuts they're seeing along roads. And some who worked on the state's wildfire cleanup project say it's moving too fast and cutting too many burned trees. OPB's Cassandra Profita reports. One problem with hazard tree removal after wildfire is that some of the burned areas are closed for public safety until the trees are cut. Yep, yep, yep. That's why Michael Crocto with the environmental group Bark is buckled into a helicopter right now. His group didn't want to wait for Highway 224 to reopen in the Mount Hood National Forest. So they invited me and a videographer to fly over the highway to see how many trees have been removed along the wild and scenic stretch of the Clackamas River. These things are moving forward really fast and there hasn't really been too much opportunity for public input. Crocta says cutting too many trees too fast after a wildfire creates a higher risk of environmental damage. He's already seen it happen along the Brightonbush River near Detroit. You know, in that area, there's vast swaths of trees that were cut down. A lot of them are still alive. That's really something we don't want to see along the Clackamas River. Below the helicopter, he can see the trees the Oregon Department of Transportation and its contractors have removed along the highway that hugs the river. Yeah, I really didn't expect to see so many green trees cut. <laughs> Maybe yeah. it was just wishful thinking, but it's a bummer to see. I mean, it's those terrible. are really going to be the lifeboats for this forest. Highway 224 is just one of many state roads where burned trees are being removed for safety. ODOT says professional arborists are making careful decisions about which trees need to be cut. But Tom Ford says that hasn't been the case, given the rush to cut down so many trees. He was the lead arborist for CDR McGuire, a Florida-based company hired by ODOT to oversee the hazard tree removal work across the state. He wrote the operating procedures for choosing which burned trees should be removed. But he says his very first draft didn't get reviewed before it was implemented. It was really simple because I wanted to just give people something they could get to the table with and start to argue. It was never, ever, ever meant to be used in the field. In January, Ford was let go. ODOT contractors have marked about 64,000 trees for removal and cut about 24,000 of them. But Ford says the criteria they're using to do that is inadequate, creating a risk that arborists will mark trees for removal that aren't actually hazardous. As foresters, what do we do to bring this forest back to a state of health? We don't cut down every single tree as fast as we can just because it's halfway burned. That's what they're doing. An ODOT contractor who worked with Ford says the project has evolved since Ford left and is now based on the best available science. ODOT forester and certified arborist Dan Lepshot is driving through the closed Highway 224 corridor. He says deciding which trees need to be removed for public safety isn't an exact science, 
because it's so hard to tell when a tree is going to fall. We know the tree's dead. We know it's going to fall across the road. We want to take care of that tree. But is it imminent hazard? That implies timing. One thing you can't do with hazard tree, nobody can, is tell you when a tree is going to fall with any certainty at all. For safety, he says, the state is cutting trees if they're likely to die in the next few years. We could go to the extreme of keeping the highway closed so we don't cut any trees. Five years we come back, okay, which trees are still alive? Let's clean up all these dead ones and go. We can't do that. We have, we have highways to maintain. The agency says it has certified arborists checking each other's work and looking for signs that a tree is likely to become dangerous to people on the road. Some worry that federal disaster funding has created a money grab around hazard tree cutting. But ODOT says its contracts are carefully designed so that no one has an incentive to cut more trees just to make more money. Meanwhile, several other arborists have quit working for ODOT's contractors. They agree with Ford, who says the whole project has been rushed and mismanaged. They're so far into something that's so wrong, the best thing that you can do is just stop it. So far, the state has only cut a small fraction of the hazard trees it plans to remove, with hundreds of thousands of trees to go. I'm Cassandra Profita, reporting. Here's 2021 Talks, tracking our presidency in historic times. Welcome to 2021 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. You can believe your eyes. It's what you felt in your gut. It's what you now know in your heart. This wasn't policing. This was murder. The defendant is guilty of all three counts, and there's no excuse. Steve Schleicher, an attorney for the prosecution of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, gave closing arguments Monday, describing George Floyd's last moments in detail. He argued Chauvin's continued use of force against Floyd for nine minutes and 29 seconds was excessive and unjustifiable. Chauvin is charged with second-degree murder, second-degree manslaughter, and third-degree murder for Floyd's death, which sparked worldwide protests over racial justice last summer. Chauvin's defense attorney, Eric Nelson, made his closing argument by explaining Chauvin, quote, does not have to prove his innocence. Instead, he said the jury needs to put themselves in the shoes of an officer in the same situation. Nelson emphasized before officers put him on the ground, Floyd, while handcuffed, resisted going into the back of a police car, saying he was claustrophobic. It shows that human beings make decisions in highly stressful situations that they believe to be right in the very moment it is occurring. While such an argument is often used to defend police actions, it is usually employed to justify quick, often split-second decisions, rather than more controlled situations over a longer period of time. The 12 jurors in the trial are now in deliberations. Attorney General Merrick B. Garland commemorated the 26th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing Monday, promising to combat domestic extremism. Department of Justice is pouring its resources into stopping domestic violent extremists before they can attack and prosecuting those who do and battling the spread of the kind of hate that leads to tragedies like the one we mark today. So far, the Justice Department has arrested more than 400 defendants in their investigation of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The White House is getting flack from several Democrats for announcing it would not increase the number of refugees allowed into the country keeping former President Donald Trump's cap of 15,000. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said Monday, President Joe Biden plans to raise the limit by May 15th. Biden met with a bipartisan group of Congress people Monday to discuss potential changes to his $2 trillion infrastructure plan. I am prepared to compromise. I asked 
senators and congressmen who would either been governors or mayors because they didn't know what it's like to make things work. Meanwhile, Vice President Kamala Harris promoted the infrastructure plan in North Carolina. Good jobs are what the president and I will create with the American Jobs Plan. Some see the administration shifting their message to focus on the quality of the plan's jobs rather than the potential number, which was initially exaggerated. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Laura ross Tellum. Thanks for listening. Here's the national news. The Public News Service Doi Newscast, April the 20th, 2021. I'm Mike Clifford. State Senate lawmakers considering a bill today that would increase the penalty for obstructing a highway in Tennessee from a Class A misdemeanor to a Class E felony, punishable by up to six years in prison and a mandatory fine of up to $3,000. We get more from Nadia Ramlagan. Critics say the legislation is a response to widespread protests over police brutality and is intended to squash further protest. Policy manager at Equity Alliance, Kendra Lee, explains a felony charge automatically strips a person of their voting rights and believes the legislation aims to deter people from taking to the streets. Whether people are protesting against mask mandates, whether people are protesting against police brutality, We have seen people across political parties and political affiliations who have both expressed their freedom to peacefully assemble. Supporters argue the legislation is needed to maintain law and order and prevent violence. Lee adds it's not by sheer coincidence this is happening on the heels of the Derek Chauvin trial while we are still dealing with police brutality in this nation. In Minnesota, the judge in Chauvin's murder trial and the death of George Floyd criticized recent comments by Representative Maxine Waters, Democrat of California, and said her words could be grounds for the defense to appeal a verdict. That from NBC News. They report the congressman was already facing a torrent of Republican ire for her comments over the weekend, urging protesters in Minnesota to get more confrontational if Chauvin is not convicted. By the way, the judge's comments were out of earshot of the jury. The jury had just begun their deliberations in the case. Meantime, Suzanne Potter reports Oklahoma lawmakers expected to vote this week on a bill that labor groups say could greatly damage school-based unions. Senate Bill 634 would require union members who work in school districts to proactively re-sign their union card and authorize a payroll deduction twice a year. Nancy Leonard is president of Local 6049 of the American Federation of Teachers, which represents school support staff in Tulsa. She says it's not right to put up these kind of roadblocks. We don't have time to be fooling around twice a year. We are so busy. If I'm a member, I'm a member. I want to stay a member. If I'm not a member and I join, then leave it alone because I have the right now to drop it at any time I want. Currently, once someone signs up, the payroll deduction automatically renews until they cancel it. Oklahoma is a right-to-work state, so dues are entirely voluntary. In Florida, the Senate there currently is considering a bill with a similar provision, one of many anti-union bills proposed in red state legislatures in recent years. This is PNS. Communities across Nebraska are banding together now in response to the COVID-19 health emergency and volunteers have become critical for distributing vaccines. Alejandrina Lanuza with the Center for Rural Affairs is helping residents in Schuyler overcome any language barriers at the town's weekly vaccine clinic. She says nonprofit organizations are uniquely positioned to help these kinds of emergency operations succeed. 
as nonprofits, we know the needs that our community have, and we have those connections. We have a real connection with people, and people trust us. Skyler's Thursday Clinic has been staffed largely by volunteers who greet residents and help them get registered. Volunteers also sit with folks after they get their shots until they've been cleared by medical staff. Lanusa says it has taken a village-wide effort to pull off the clinic's logistics, and local businesses have stepped up by providing free meals and recruiting volunteers. I'm Eric Galatis. Low-wage workers in Mississippi's restaurant, construction, and retail industries would benefit the most if the state expands Medicaid coverage under the new federal stimulus package. That's according to a new report. Joan Alker co-authored the study from the Georgetown University Center for Children and Families. She says the American Rescue Plan Act has new financial incentives to expand Medicaid in the 12 states, including Mississippi, that have refused to do so under the Affordable Care Act. The report finds cashiers, maids, and cooks, all female-dominated occupations, were the top three uninsured low-wage workers in Mississippi who would gain much-needed health coverage. Maternal mortality tends to impact black women more more than white women, there's growing evidence that Medicaid expansion reduces maternal and infant mortality. It's a critical first step to make sure that these women have coverage before, during, and after pregnancy. I'm Diane Bernard. Finally, as we've been reporting, President Joe Biden convenes a virtual climate summit with world leaders on Thursday, which is Earth Day. Here is Lily Bolke. Former Maine Governor John Baldacci says Biden's climate agenda would make a big difference in the state. He points out that Maine is poorer than the national average, has lost many manufacturing jobs to overseas, and is in great need of high-paying union jobs. Asthma is a big issue in terms of the ozone that comes into our state from the Midwest power plants. So we try to recognize that health care and energy, clean energy, are tied together from the air we breathe and the water we drink. Maine lawmakers have introduced a bill that would implement the state's four-year plan for climate action called Maine Won't Wait. It would reduce greenhouse gas emissions 45 percent by 2030 and 80 percent by 2050. This is Mike Clifford for Public News Service. Member and listener supported, heard on great radio stations and online at publicnewsservice.org. Thanks for listening to today's edition, produced by Joseph C. McGuire and edited by Jay Charles. You've been listening to Skagit Talks, the community information and news program on KSVR, Skagit Community Radio. <laughs>